uh, you know, I had a conversation beforehand with Ez, and uh, we spoke about something that I think really gets to the heart of the matter. Tonight, I probably should actually make this lesson the second and then do the Psalter the third, because the Psalter, you can, you can end on a little bit more of an upbeat note. Because this, tonight, the material we read is a little, it's a little, a bit of a downer. Yeah. And we we uh, we're gonna read about yeah. failure, about yeah, human yeah. failure. You know, that's what it's at. But it's not supposed to end on that note. The the final, the last word is Christ, and the whole point, really, why the Old Testament has got so much. It really it just ends on a negative note. I mean, the whole Old Testament really just kind of ends on a failure. Uh, is because we're supposed to get it reinforced in our minds that it's Jesus who is the solution to the problem. And that human beings, we can't trust ourselves and that in and of ourselves, we're bound to fall. And God's plan can't be realized through us. It doesn't. We don't have the resources in ourselves to realize God's sovereign plan of salvation. Uh, for the world. The kingdom of heaven is going to be uh, grounded and established and realized only through Christ, uh, who is fully human, but also he's, he is God himself. And so that is a demonstration of the sovereignty of God. And then the other, some other things we're saying is like, okay, so David, we read about, he's, um, David is, you know, he's, he commits this sin with Bathsheba and a lot of negative consequences follow. And uh, some of the, we'll get into this when we read the passages, some of the older commentators say, well, I mean, the, the more recent commentators I read say that when God punishes David by saying, the sword shall not depart from your house, uh, that's to be understood as the death of, uh, I think it's Amna and um, Absalom. The two two of David's sons, and then a third son immediately too, uh, eventually as well, and then this, and then that punishment ends. But then older commentators say the sort the, that God's punishment goes into David's house all the way to the Babylonian exile in 586. So so that so if that's true, if that's if those older commentators are true. Then what we're looking at is David committing uh, a sin, uh, albeit a very bad one, a very bad one. But its consequences going for 500 years. All right, I mean, that, that's a really an amazing thing to think about that, and probably more so. I mean, in a certain sense, but at least 500 years or 450 years or so uh, of consequences after his sin. Um, and then Solomon is even worse. Solomon is uh, he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now polygamy was. There was this kind of a dispensation in the Old Testament. God allowed polygamy to take place, but not that much. Seven hundred wives. That was really he was really pushing the envelope, you know. And uh, I mean, it's crazy to think about that, right? Yeah. So, uh, and the the worst part about it is that they were all uh, foreign women who, and he did it for political treaties, you know. He would so he would make an alignment. Uh, he would make a, an agreement with a foreign power. And the way that they would seal that agreement was by him marrying the daughter of the per, of the man of the king that he made the agreement with. So I mean, that's 300, 300 
uh, sorry, 700 wives, and um, you know that was that's a bit over the top. Yeah, to say the least, you know. And they were all foreign uh, Gentile women who worshipped false gods, and they brought him into that. So then he was building idolatrous altars and temples right in Jerusalem, and in fact, right near the temple, right near the temple of the one true God. So Solomon really, really messed up. You know, he really messed up. And he was the wisest man on the earth, and I mean, he had a lot of. A lot of gifts were given to him by God, and he really messed up big time. And in fact, the commentators, I read at least one commentator, an old commentator from the 16th century, says that Solomon's salvation is unknown. Like, we don't even know that Solomon is saved. Mm. I mean, that's pretty... That's, we, we have a reassurance that David is. Okay, so David repented. David is a model of repentance. So uh, David died in God's grace. But whether or not Solomon did is left open a little bit, at least from that one commentator, from one traditional commentator. So that's pretty serious. But you see, we see what we're going to read about failure tonight, unfortunately. But the reinforcement is that uh, despite all this failure, God's sovereign will is still going to prevail. And that's the next phase that we move into starting next Wednesday. We're going to read about the prophecies. And so we read about all these prophecies despite... David's sin, despite Solomon's sin, despite really David and Solomon were just um, microcosms of a bigger picture. The bigger picture being that is that the nation of as a whole went into idolatry, and despite all of that idolatrous disobedience, God's kingdom is still going to come. How is that going to happen? God's Messiah is still going to is going to be sent and is going to be victorious, and David's throne is going to be there forever. And someone, there's going to be someone to sit on David's throne forever. How is that going to be realized? And it's realized in Christ. But you know, another thing that that as and I were speaking about is that um, Jesus Himself looked like He failed. He didn't fail through sin, but in a certain sense, it looked like He really, really failed because He was crucified. And so the great power of God is actually shown through weakness and through apparent failure. And so that's the whole that's the story of the Old Testament. The Old Testament looks like one big failure, but that's what the New Testament looks like too, one big failure. So God's sovereignty is made to uh, manifest as all that much more sovereign and powerful through that through that failure. God said at one point to St. Paul, he says my power is made perfect in weakness. And that little thing that he said to St. Paul kind of is a summation of really the whole Bible of all of the pattern of how God deals with, with mankind. My power is made perfect in weakness. And uh, for our own spiritual lives, the moment that we think that we can uh, stay in God's grace by our own strength, you're done for. You're absolutely done for. Never, ever, ever even let the thought go through your mind. Really. If the thought ever goes through your mind, push it out and pray God and ask Him, for humility. <laughs> okay, could you say that again? Yeah, so. The thought, the, the moment that we think that we can remain in God's grace by our own strength, um. it's the moment we fail. I mean, that is, that's, the, or that's at least the beginning of a road to eventual failure. So we have to depend upon Christ. And I, I talked last time, every day we should pray for the grace of final perseverance. You know? Solomon, maybe he didn't persevere to the end. He had a good start, but maybe he didn't persevere to the end. The children of Israel were were freed out of Israel out of uh, Egypt, 
and they were they were looking pretty good. You know, they went through the Red Sea, which is a type of baptism. They ate the spiritual drink. They drank it from the spiritual rock that followed them, like Paul said. But nonetheless, many of them died in the wilderness and never made it to the promised land. So we can be baptized, but we're still we're going through the wilderness, and we've got to depend upon God's strength, and we can't, um, you know, follow what the what the Israelites did, the mistakes they made. We can't imitate them. We have to. Uh, stay in, in utter dependence upon Christ. And so every day when we pray, we should say, you know, Christ, I depend upon you. You are my strength. Um, apart from you, I will, I will fail. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We just don't have, that's the law. It's a spiritual law. You can't, you can't remain in God's grace apart from uh, dependence upon Christ. So when we're baptized the babies, we're baptized into sin. No, we're baptized into God's grace. God's grace. Well, yes. Okay. So we're actually sin is remitted through baptism. It's taken away. Okay. Is that what you meant? I, I didn't know. Uh, yeah, I, through His grace is the way I understand. We're, we're born in sin. You know. We're born in sin, but we're baptized into grace. And, and hopefully as we grow up, we have parents that are very solicitous to make sure that we maintain a state of grace and eventually obviously we kind of we have to make our own decisions but they should be guiding us in the right path and it is possible to maintain that you know when we're baptized if you ever see a baptism and they put the uh, baptismal robe on the little baby <coughs> or if it's an adult being baptized they'll put a baptismal there'll be a baptismal robe and it's white and the priest will say um, this is a symbol basically of God's grace and keep it unstained until Christ comes. Keep that robe unstained until Christ comes. Now, uh, it is possible to maintain that baptismal purity throughout our whole lives. It's possible. Um, unfortunately, I think it's kind of rare, and it's probably more and more rare, the, the way that the, the world gets more and more pervasive with kind of corruption and you know, I mean, it's probably always been pretty difficult to maintain. I think probably always it's always been a very small minority who have maintained the baptismal innocence. But when we lose it, unfortunately, through mortal sin, of course, then we have the sacrament of penance. And that's how we get... Um, and so David, again, David is the pattern for us. David was in God's grace. He fell. And then he, through his repentance, he came back into God's grace. So, um, but yeah, it's that, that baptismal innocence and purity... We need to depend upon God throughout the course of our entire life to maintain that. Okay, well, why don't we uh, why don't we open up the Bible to Second Samuel, and we'll just uh, we won't read certain things, but we'll just kind of um, review a few things that we've already read together. Christian charity, right there. <laughs> So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you'll remember this was David's the covenant that God made with David. And this is the, uh, this is the pinnacle of his success in a certain sense, in his spiritual uh, success and his favor with God. So in uh, seven, chapter 7, verse 1, Now when the king dwelt in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies round about, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, uh, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But the point here is that um, the Lord had given David rest. David was leader of both Judah 
and of Israel. And so he was the, he was the leader of the unified kingdom of Israel. And, uh, he had been, he's escaped all of Saul's persecutions. And he really, I mean, David's whole adventures up into this time are really something else. And, uh, and he made it. He made it through. And it's because he was, he was a righteous guy, really, up into this point. And so then, this is really the pinnacle, and then God reveals this covenant to him and says that, um, you know, you will, your seed talks about David's seed that will sit upon the throne of David forever. And so that's the prophecy of the Messiah. And David is just, he can't believe what he's hearing, and he's really humbled. And uh, you have some beautiful prayers that he prays, the kind of humility that he has. But then the problem starts. So if we go to... There's some other things that take place, some other battles that David fights, but then we go to chapter 11, and this is the beginning of the bad bad thing here. So how about we have someone read um, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Just the first five verses of chapter 11. Who wants to do that for us? David sent. At the turn of the year when kings go out on campaign, David sent out Joab along with his officers in the army of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. David, however, remained in Jerusalem. One evening David rose from a siesta, strolled off onto strolled about on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing who was very beautiful. David had inquiries made about the woman and was told, She is Bathsheba, daughter of Iliam and wife of Joab, Job's armbearer, Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers and took her. When she came to him, he had relations with her at a time when she was just purified after her monthly period. She then returned to her house, but the woman had conceived and sent the information to David, I am with child. Good. Okay, so let's notice a few things here that are very relevant to, um, to, to a lot of things. Okay, so first of all, notice, okay, what time of the year is it? Spring. Spring, okay. So things are starting to be warmer outside. So people are going out, right? I mean, this is, it's funny, but there's, there's metaphorical things and then there's also real things. Like, okay, so, so, so time of year is, is important in this kind of stuff. So spring, so she's, that brings people out and they're, they're taking off, you know, they're wearing less clothes basically at this time of the year. But more important than that, okay, what, so it's springtime, but what happens during springtime according to verse 1? Men go off to war. Right. And what's David doing? He's not in war. He should be. Okay. He's not where he's supposed to be. Exactly. Okay. And then also too, it's metaphorical too. For the spiritual life is a war, and if you start lounging around and not fighting, you're done for. Okay. Uh, now in. Chapter, or sorry, verse two. It says it happened late one afternoon, and then, and the one the translation we heard was very much an interpretive translation. It says after a siesta. Now, what's a siesta? 
an afternoon nap. Okay, <laughs> so it was a David's like a Mexican or an Italian right now. Okay, so so now and notice too, both Mexico and, and Italy and Spain, they're in the hot areas like in Palestine. It's similar. Okay, so they have a hot time and they're going to try to escape from the heat. There's nothing wrong with that per se for a culture that does that. But just just note though, okay, it's, it's hot out, it's springtime, it's, he's sleeping when he should be fighting, you know, okay. So that's, he's setting himself up already for failure, alright? So, uh, and then he, he, he sees Bathsheba. Now someone, I remember hearing someone talk a long time ago, I don't know if this is true or not, but I don't know. Someone said, well, you know, David was the main culprit here, but what was Bathsheba doing out on the top of her roof, you know, without any clothes on? I mean, so, so, I mean that, that, could be, that could be something. I don't know if the text is trying to implicate Bathsheba in all of this or not. I don't know, but, you know, it could be. And then you get, you know, you get into the, um, uh, the virtue of modesty. Okay, so we talk about modesty now... Nowadays, oftentimes people have a very reduced understanding of modesty. And they think of modesty as something like, well, you don't boast about yourself, and that is part of modesty. Uh, they also think, well, if modesty is something like, you know, uh, people, and particularly women, dressing in a way that's not too revealing of their flesh. And that's, that's true. That's part of modesty. Modesty, uh, at a deeper level, is a lot bigger than that, though. Modesty has to do with the moderating of... Uh, Various um, uh, passions, it's moderating them and keeping them kind of balanced and in check, and it actually means a lot. It's a very, very big uh, virtue that covers a lot of different sort of behavior and sub virtues and whatnot. But one element of modesty, when it comes to like how we dress, that people oftentimes miss is that modesty is not only is it not you're, you're trying to not expose other people to temptation. But it's exposing yourself to temptation as well. So if you, so there's such a thing as an immodest look as well as an immodest dress. So it takes two to tango. It's both ways, you know. And so it's very important what you put into your, into your eyes. Uh, so David, uh, it was a big, big mistake. But he he conceived, he conceived lust, no doubt about it, in his eyes, and that's what led him to t- take these really bold steps. So, I mean, really, like the mortal sin was committed already when he just looked and then lusted. Because, uh, and I'm saying that, I mean, I think I can infer that because he, that was a pretty bold move. He's like, okay, so find out who this woman is, have her come over. It's, it was already, in his mind, he has already sinned, you know. Um, and then she says, I'm with child. Okay, so now this is really, in contrast to David's laziness, and everything else, we've got another figure here, Uriah, who's a very virtuous man. So, can someone read verses, say, 6 through 13 for us? Who wants to read 6 through 13? Tony, go ahead. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joah did, Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. 
But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife, as thou livest, and as thy soul liveth? I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. Okay. So I don't know. I'd like to think Uriah didn't get you know drunk, drunk in a in a in a in a seriously sinful manner, but maybe he did. I'm not sure. In any event, uh, David is the more guilt. I mean, he's very he's what is he doing here? What is David trying to do? So he's trying to get Uriah, okay, to go and just to have a you know a nice night with his wife, and then afterward he probably asks, okay, Bathsheba. So then, did he lie with you? Okay. So then that way the child would be attributed to Uriah and that's his whole his whole um, motive. And so he uh but Uriah is a guy who uh what's what's Uriah's reasoning for why he he refuses to go to his house? Well his troops were having a good time and he was yeah. a great warrior. Yeah, I mean his his troops are out there sacrificing everything and so he's not going to go. You know, he's doing what David should have been doing in a, in a certain sense, right? Exactly. And uh, I think there also this is a side note, but I think there might be um, an element to this where uh, war was considered a kind of a holy endeavor and uh, almost like a religious um, a religious uh, endeavor. And because of that, the male uh, war soldiers they would refrain from marital relations, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so that that was like a really intentional kind of thing that the that the men would do, and um, so that might be another element of it. But then, but certainly, it's also just generally because he doesn't want to, you know, have a nice nice time while his buddies are sleeping in the. You know, out in the cold fields, and, and and you know, having having to risk their lives and whatnot. So um, David realizes, um, okay, this is not going to work. Mm. I, I, he's not going to go and and um, spend a night with his wife. So then, what's David's next step? Then, yep, murder. Okay. So we won't have to. We won't read that part. But it's basically verses fourteen to twenty-five, and he says to uh, Joab, "Now, okay, so take Uriah, put him in the front lines, go up to this city's wall, you know, really press it, and then have everybody pull back really quick without Uriah knowing about it, so that he's isolated 
and so that he becomes a target. And now, mm-hmm. what do you think? Is jo- what's Joab? I mean, does Joab know what's going on? Is Joab guiltless in this? No. Nope. No, Joab knows what's going on too. So unfortunately, there's a, there's a lot of sin in all of this involved, and Joab is is not uh, guiltless at all. So, <clears throat> I mean, the right thing for Joab to do would, be, would have been to say, um, "Sire, uh, that sounds like murder to me. I'm not going to do it, <laughs> and I don't think you should have anybody do that." You know, um, you know, even at the cost of his life, because we can never do something. Uh, seriously sinful, even at the cost of our life. We have to lay down our life first before we do something that bad. So, um, David is basically, indirectly, he murders Uriah. Uh, Now, how about we read verses 26 and 27 here. So, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she made lamentation for her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So it's a kind of ends on a very sort of ominous note. Okay. Um, now I would say you know Bathsheba is responsible in part as well in all of this, of course. Um, but certainly David takes the biggest brunt of, the, of everything because he's the king. He's got all this power, and you know um, he is a very much he can impose himself on people. So. Bathsheba is partially responsible, but she's also certainly been imposed upon as well by the by the kind of kingly authority that David wields. So God was displeased with this. So now we've got this next encounter between Nathan and David, and it's a really powerful one. And I'll I'll read um, starting in chapter twelve here. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. You know what's interesting as well is, is we just notice this. So we know we see all of the stuff that's going on. We have a very privileged perspective. It's like God's perspective. God sees all of this stuff that's going on, and we should also remember that in all our lives. And that would really helps us obey God's laws. We remember God's watching us. You know, doesn't matter. It's not our mother watching us anymore. You know, <laughs> but it's God who's watching us. And if we if we remember that, it, it is helpful to know that we're in God's presence. And not to be fearful about that, but to just remember that, and then be and be very, you know, so that behind closed doors you do you act like a Christian, you know, you act like God's watching you because He is. And so also with David, uh, God was watching him, and what he did was displeasing. So then God sends a prophet. So the Lord sent sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, "Now this is a parable here. There were two rich men in a certain city. One." Uh, Oh, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had, uh, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it uh, grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. So it's this little lamb that this guy has. Okay, he's a poor man, right? That's all he's got, right? And it's a, it's the pride and joy of the family. Okay. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, "As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die." And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. 
Nathan said to David, you are the man. <laughs> so how does the, yeah, we're going to read on there. How does that parable correspond? How is that analogous to what David has done? He took the one wife of right. Uriah. Right. So Uriah, it's, Uriah is the poor man with this one little lamb that was really precious to him. Okay, And that's all he had. And David, on the other hand, was this rich guy, and he had all of this, these flocks and herds. He, was, he had plenty of wives. He had 20-something wives or whatever, however he had. Okay, So he didn't need one more. And uh, much less another, another lamb that belonged to someone else. And so it was really, really uh, nasty. And the kind of cruelty of David towards Uriah is brought out in this parable in a really big way. And it's so the cruelty of the rich man is so clear to David that even David is mad, right? But he's been trapped. David's been trapped. And I think this whole interaction between Nathan and David is a lot like how the Bible works in general for us when we read it. It's a mirror that helps us see ourselves. And sometimes we're like, ooh, I guess that is me. You know? And hopefully good preaching is like that too. You know, preaching shouldn't make us comfortable and satisfied where we are, but it should kind of show us the mirror and maybe some of the not-so-pretty spots and make us, okay, okay, all right, I, that's, that's true, you're right, you got me, you got me. So, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have smitten Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have slain him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So that's a pretty strong rebuke uh, against David. There's no doubt about it. Is that also like the foreshadowing of, of what the Lord, what, what the Father, our Father God has done for us? That he and his only son died. Kind of like, like it doesn't seem fair that the child had to suffer that. Mm. Then it yeah. spurs on the son. That's not a bad observation. Yeah, there could be something to that. Yeah, it's innocent life dying because of someone else's sin. Yeah. Yep. And that's part of the atonement. That was part of David's. David had to make atonement for his sins, and that was what part of part of it was. So. Of course, you know the child went to heaven, and you know. Yeah. I'm sure. Yes. Know, yes. Absolutely. Yep. So the the Old Test in the Old Testament they didn't have baptism, but they had various rites, some of which we don't know about. But one for sure we know is the circumcision. Circumcision had that effect of, of that. It's 
corresponds to baptism essentially. So the child was uh, didn't was not guilty of any personal sin, and it would have been um, you know it would have been circumcised, and so it would have been in God's covenant and His grace, and so. So the child's soul died in a, in a state of God's grace. Nonetheless, it was still very unfortunate that it had to happen, and it was um, it was a, basically a means of expiation and atonement, and it was innocent life, um, and it was a it was a punishment really for da- for David. Uh, and it that lets us know too. I mean, think about the flood, right? People talk about the flood, Noah's flood. Uh, whether all the people in the world were killed by the flood, or whether it was a region of people in the in you know the Middle East or, that were killed by the flood, in any event, there was plenty of innocent life that was killed in the flood. You know, think about all the babies, you know, uh, children, all that. You know, so what that teaches us is that our sins affect our our children and our our descendants. Um, so. For good or for bad, our, our lives affect for good or for bad future generations. Um, so it's it's doubly it's like double motivation to live a good life because it's going to be it's going to it's going to redound in positive effects for those who come after us. If we live a negative li- a bad life, it's going to be negative for those who come after us. So I think this weekend I'm going to preach on um, the social teaching of the church. And there's like these four or five principles that are kind of like rock bottom solid, uh, solid cornerstones for the social teaching of the church. And um, the you know social justice is a very important uh, element. It has to do with our obligations to society, to society's obligations to its individuals, um, but also the individuals' obligations to society and. I just really like to, for my own life, meditate on it. I, I just know my, hopefully I become less and less selfish as I get older, hopefully. I mean, that's what I'd like to think, you know. And, uh, but I, I certainly in my mind and my knowledge and my moral consciousness, I just realize how we, myself included, we live lives that are very, we don't think about how our lives affect other people for good or for bad. We just really, really live very, you know, we have a tendency because of concupiscence to live a life that's extremely self-absorbed and uh, and focused on on you know. So people will be into some kind of sin, whatever it is, and they'll say, "Well, that just that doesn't hurt anybody. That just affects me." It's like, mm. oh, because it, even if there is some kind of sin that you're doing that you think somehow it doesn't affect other people, first of all, it does. Because whether you live a holy life or a good life. A good life or a bad life, you that shapes how you relate to other to your neighbor. So it does in that sense. But also, what you know, people can think to them. I, I mean, I think to myself this: if you uh, you know you do bad things behind closed doors and you think, oh, that doesn't hurt anybody, just hurt that just you know, if it hurts anybody, it's just hurting me. It's not hurting anybody else. It's like you're taking yourself out of the game. Human beings need you to be a positive influence. So, like, people don't think about what they could be. You know, like, we're called to, to be good human beings, to be good Christians, and to be beacons of light for the world. And so, if we darken our lives, that's all that less light in the world. You know, so we gotta, so we have to be motivated to be all that we can be for the sake of the good of, the, the common good of society. And um, 
you know, so again, and then future generations. So it affects what we do affects future generations. It affects the whole all of society that we live in, and it affects future generations. Um, so it's an important concept of solidarity. We're in solidarity with one another, and we have to we have to uh, live good lives for the sake of our neighbor. Well, okay. So David is very convicted, and notice this though. So David has authentic repentance. And if we go to the famous penitential psalm, it's Psalm 51, famous penitential psalm. Um, you know, wash me with hyssop, so forth and so on. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. So this is uh, as a heart contrite. You know, Psalm 51 talks about the contrite heart. And so that's David's uh, contrition after this sin. And he really is convicted and he really is contrite, and it's because he's contrite that God forgives his sin. So he has authentic repentance. He's forgiven, and Uriah, I'm sorry, Nathan says, the Lord also has put away your sin. So that's, that's true forgiveness. David is really forgiven. Um, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have so forth and so on, the child that is born to you shall die. And then also the sword shall never be removed from your house. And also there's going to be this whole retribution about his, David's wives are going to be taken from, from him. Okay, and now how does, does anybody know how that happens? How does how do David's wives become taken from him? Does anybody did anybody read on, or they know how the narrative works? It kind of implies that maybe his kingdom is going to be taken over, or maybe doing battle, and then. Yeah, no, you're 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 pretty much right. I mean, your assumption is right. You have um, David's king Absalom. I'm sorry, David's son Absalom rebels against him and this guy is unbelievable okay he is a super super brat and what he does is he not only is he, so he rebels against his own dad all of guy, the guys that are on his dad's side basically they get they have to flee Jerusalem Absalom takes over all Jerusalem and then wages war against his own dad and wants to kill him okay and then it, what he does, though, before he wages war is he takes all of David's wives and he sleeps with them, all of them, on the rooftop before everybody so they all know what's going on. So all, they're like, oh my gosh. So what, why he did that is because he wanted to let everybody know that he, he, there was no going back. Like He drew a line in the sand and it was just war against his dad. He wasn't going, there was no chance for future peace, period, with his own father. Um, and I think it says of Absalom in some point, now David had never said to him when he was growing up, why did you do that? <laughs> Meaning that David never, you know, he babied him. He babied the kid. He gave him whatever he wanted. and He never really rebuked him or corrected him when he was growing up. And Absalom was a pretty boy as well. So David was very handsome, but then Absalom is this pretty boy and he's got all this big head of hair and he's like, you know, he's a ladies' man and all this kind of stuff. He thinks he's, he thinks he's something hot, you know. And uh, but he's all full of himself, and he turns on his own dad. But he's got kind of there's a certain kind of in his own mind how it starts though is with his with his sister Tamar. So we're going to read on here. Well, actually, before we go on to Tamar, okay. So let me say this: you've got two curses that are going to come on to David. Number one, it says the sword will never depart from your house, and number two, your own wives are going to be taken from you. So the wives part is, is that prophecy is fulfilled in uh, what Absalom does. Uh, but then it says, the sword shall never depart from your house. Uh, Amnon gets killed, one of David's sons. 
Absalom gets killed, another David's sons. Uh, Ahijah, I think, is his name, another David's sons. He gets killed. All right, those three at least, and then the older commentators, as I was saying, they they talk, they go through David's entire lineage all the way to the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, and they point out all of these different sons that die in battle or get assassinated or conspired against or whatever, so forth and so on. And it's all within David's house, meaning like one of his descendants is killing another one of his descendants, and it's all internal. Uh, murder and conspiracy and all this kind of stuff. So, if those older commentators are right, like I was saying, then that's 450 years of of negative consequences for this for this sin that that David did. But it really was bad. I mean, if you think about it, David was this righteous guy, this holy guy, and then suddenly, woo! I mean, over like instantaneously, adultery and then murder. Oh my gosh, you know, all for the sake of saving his face, you know. So, uh, but this is something I've pointed out in the past here, is um, if you look on my little printout here, it says in 12.13, the Lord is put away, and nevertheless punishment remains. Okay, so then my comment is punishment remains after forgiveness. All right? And I've talked about this in the past here, Hmm. is... um, You've got this principle that your sins can be forgiven, but there can still be negative consequences for your sins. Okay, so the the archetypical sin is the sin of Adam and Eve, right? And I think it's probably you can make a good argument that Adam and Eve really were repentant. They really were contrite at when God calls them on the spot and God says, "Okay, what did you do?" And Adam confesses, and Eve confesses, so forth and so on. And they so they make a good confession. But then God gives the penance. Did they? Well, some people doubt it. Some people, so I guess the commentators are divided, but I think the majority... Because Adam thought, basically said, well, it's her fault. And right. she said, yes. well, it's not mine, it's the serpent. So they were passing so, the buck. Exactly. So St. Gregory the Great Saint Gregory the Great thinks they're passing the buck, but other, other ancient fathers think they're making a good confession. I, don't, I think they're making a good confession. They're not passing the buck, but they might be. I mean, you know, it's funnier if they are passing the buck. How about that? <laughs> But maybe what happens is after they pass the buck, they're, they're repentant afterwards. You know, um, in any event, they definitely become repentant at some point because Adam is known in the rest in other passages of the Scripture of being one of the holiest guys who have ever lived. So he redeems himself. Okay, and you've got all these stories within Judaism of of Adam doing great penance, like huge amounts of penance, going to the Jordan River and standing in the Jordan River and wearing sackcloth and ashes and all this stuff. So there's all this kind of tradition about Adam about him being a great penitent. And Eve as well. Where would that be? I never read that. It's just in tradition. There's not, there's not books you can read, pick up and read about. Uh, there's one book. It's called uh, the I think it's called the Assumption of Moses or something like. That. It's a Jewish work, and it portrays Adam and Eve as great penitents. It's probably written in the first century A.D. or something. A little very old Jewish tradition. And then, uh, and, but how we know Adam is is a saint is because of Sirach. Uh, in the book of Sirach, it goes through all the ancient patriarchs and it ends with Adam and it says Adam is like the most glorious out of them all. So, it's really kind of a big deal. And the Eastern Orthodox still have a feast of Adam and Eve. Something we've kind of let go of, you know, our appreciation for, for our first parents. Okay. So, they sin, they're repentant, but nonetheless there's still punishment, right? Eve is going to have ch- pain in childbirth, Adam is still going to have to labor over the the, the um, earth, and then of course all the consequences for their descendants. Okay, so it's everybody's born in original sin. So their their decision affected everybody. 
So sin gets passed on like that. Um, one another another example is Moses and and Aaron. So Moses, and this was something I was thinking about the other day. It's a really it's a real uh, warning to people who are in the ministry, like myself. Moses is called by God to shepherd his people and to lead lead them out of Israel. And albeit they're a pain in the butt, and they give him a lot of trouble, and he gets frustrated with them. Okay, and at one point. They say, "Okay, here we are. We're we're thirsty. We're going to die of thirst. You brought us out in this place. We had plenty of water when we we're back in Egypt. Why'd you bring us out of there?" And they're complaining, being like brats. And he goes, he talks to God, and God says to him, "Okay, I'm pretty sure he says, speak to the rock, and it will give water for you." So Moses goes up to the rock and he strikes it. Boom, boom, twice I think, and and the water comes out, and the people drink the water. But God says to Moses, because you did not sanctify my name before the people of Israel, you shall not enter into the Holy Land. So Moses actually is never allowed to go into the Holy Land because he disobeyed God in that, in that part. And he dies on Mount Nebo, I believe, outside of, outside of the Holy Land. And Aaron as well. Aaron is similar as well. And I don't know, maybe... Aaron died, and I think Aaron was not allowed to go into the Holy Land Possibly because of the sin of the golden calf, okay. But they both died in God's grace. They're both great saints. Aaron repented, and Moses Moses sinned by by doing that, striking the rock. But you know he was very you know holy man, and he died in God's grace. But nonetheless, there were still punishments as a, re- as a result of his sin. And so, for the minister, what I've read somewhere, I think I read this somewhere, or I heard maybe someone say it was that the rock is a symbol of the body of, of, of Christ. Okay, the rock that gives out water is a symbol of Christ. We read about that in Corinthians. So Paul, St. Paul interprets the Old Testament for us. So that rock is a symbol of Christ. So if you think of the body of Christ, okay, and a minister's job is to speak to the body of Christ, not strike the body of Christ. Okay, so, so a priest can get real frustrated with the people because you know no matter how much he says or whatever, they're just... Oh, they're indifferent to his warnings and his preaching, and they just—they're just indifferent, you know. And that can be really frustrating. And so the minister can get mad and start like accusing and being just being cruel and like verbally striking the people as opposed mm-hmm. to speaking to them. So that's a real warning for for priests never to get angry at at the body of Christ, but to speak to it um, and not strike it. So. Um, And in Psalm, if you want to turn to Psalm 99.8, I think there's an interesting connection with all of this. Yeah, Psalm 99. And so if you go to verse... um, Starting with verse 6, okay. It says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called on his name. They cried to the Lord and he answered them. Okay, so God, God responded to their cry. Alright, so he's in relationship with them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. Remember, that's, 
That's the image under which God led out the children of Israel out of Egypt as this pillar of cloud. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. And it talks about the giving of the law. So we're, we got Moses in our mind right now. O Lord our God, thou didst answer them. Thou wast a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. So forgiving, but an avenger. Okay, so it's both. And uh, stop me if I've done this before. I think I have. I think I've said this to you guys before, but I really I can't emphasize this enough. Is the analogy I give is this. Okay. So I, I think people have a really, really hard time understanding how God can forgive them, but there's still some kind of a punishment. All right? And so the analogy I give is this. Say you got a father, and he's, and he's got his 16-year-old boy, Johnny, and Johnny is... Uh, Johnny's got a, his license. Okay, so he's got he drives he drives Dad's car. All right. Well, Johnny gets a little too excited, goes out driving too much. You know, he's hanging out with his friends a lot on the weekends, and his grades are suffering. Now, the father is like, okay, all right. Now, Johnny, this is a problem here. You gotta you gotta stay put, focus on your homework because the father's got the long-term interests of the son in mind. We want you to get in a good college, so forth and so on. You gotta, you can't be going out on Saturday nights and Sunday nights. So this is the new rule, Johnny. Saturday nights and Sunday nights, you're home here, and you're doing homework. Okay, you're not. I'm not going to give you the car, and you're not out with your friends. Well, Johnny thinks that his father just inflicted some incredible injustice against him, and he's very much feels himself justified in taking those keys. And going out anyways, Saturday night and Sunday night. Well, he goes out with some friends Saturday night. He goes to a party. He drinks. You know, there's alcohol there with underage kids and all that stuff. He drinks. He comes home. He's, it's a DWI. I mean, he's driving while he's intoxicated. And he gets into an accident, and he absolutely totals the car. Absolutely totals his car. But miraculously, he's okay. He gets thrown out, and he got some bruises and some scrapes, and he gets brought in the hospital. But he's all right. No serious damage. To his body, but to the car is completely wiped out, cold. Now, just imagine somehow that the car is not insured. Okay, okay. So he, basically, he costs his dad like a good eighteen thousand dollars or something, right? Now, his dad comes into the hospital. Johnny is really, honestly, he says, "Oh my gosh, I'm an idiot." Like he really, he sees, he can see the big picture from a bird's perspective of his life, how childish he was, how selfish he was, how stupid he was, and he's lucky that he's alive. And he feels bad. So he really is contrite to his dad. He says, you know, I am really sorry. I was a really, I was being really immature. And would you forgive me? And the dad forgives him. And dad's okay. Visits him in the hospital. So their relationship is restored. And they're on good terms with each other. The dad loves Johnny. Johnny loves the dad. Everything's okay. All right. But does Johnny have to pay off the car or not? You, you better believe he's got to pay off the car. All right. Would it be an injustice on Dad's part if, if Dad says, Johnny, now you got to pay off that car? And Johnny says, Whoa, ho, hold up, hold on now. I thought you forgave me. I thought everything was okay. It's like, Johnny, I forgive you, but you got to pay off the car. Now, if the dad wanted to, he could remit that as well, but it wouldn't be a violation of his justice to require that. So you see, just even if there's a human analogy how you can be forgiven, but at the same time, there's still kind of a payback that's required. All right? And, and that's, that can hold true in the spiritual realm. Now, sometimes God can totally uh, remove all temporal consequences and punishments as well. 
uh, he can do that if he if he so chooses. But he oftentimes doesn't because it's um, it, having to do the payoff. It's a lesson for us. So Johnny's going to become a better person because he's got a you know maybe Johnny will do this thing where like you know he gets some extra hours at the store or whatever and he and he pays off a good four or five thousand dollars and it's at that point his dad sees him working hard and dad says okay forget about the rest you see so there's a kind of a, a pedagogical element to the whole payoff thing and that's why God will oftentimes hold over the punishment even after the forgiveness because it's pedagogical it helps us learn our lesson to do the right thing get us in the back back on the right track so forth and so on so uh, I think that's what's going on here too with David David's forgiven but there's still consequences very serious consequences not just for himself though but for for future generations as well or for at least for his sons so um we can move on here to uh, chapter 12, right? I'm sorry, chapter... Um, oh yeah, if we, if we continue on in chapter 12, we see David's penance and his fasting. The child dies anyways. And then Solomon is born. So then Solomon is the second son that uh, David has with Bathsheba. Okay, Okay. now, so we see all that take place. And then immediately, chapter 13. And the whole point is that what we're about to read in chapter 13 is a consequence of what we just of what we just heard in chapter 12. So how about we have someone? Um, it's a very this is a very sordid, nasty story, but we'll read it. Uh, it's it's chapter 13, verses 1 through 22. Who wants to read this 22 verses there? Very Jack, you want to try it? Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, Why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. Then when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Pray, let my sister Tamar come and make a couple cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it, and made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan, and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber, that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made, and brought them into the chamber to Amnon her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, He took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. 
She answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this wanton folly. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the wanton fools in Israel. Now therefore, I pray you speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away, for the, this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other which you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king clad of old. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent the long robe which she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar dwelt a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Okay. So, it gets ugly. Now, one thing we can notice here with these royal households is, you know, David has something like 20-something wives. So he's got kids from all over the place, all right? And so there's brothers and sisters that are not full brothers and sisters. And they might, they might kind of, um, you know, they've got their, their mother and they've got their own kind of history with their mother. And then they've got another, there's another wife over here and she's got her own history with her kids and they're not, Super close, alright? So that's part of the problem here with, with polygamy is that when you multiply wives, it's, it's dividing the family and the, and the father can't really keep track of the sons and he's not really present to the children and, and the children are not really unified with each other. So we see that from the beginning, okay? <clears throat> and then one of the brothers, um, one of the sons falls in love with one of the daughters, so it's his half sister, okay? So Amnon and then Tamar. Tamar is the half-sister of Amnon. And of course, what do you, it's, it uses the word love, but what do you think? you think this is true love? Yeah. <laughs> okay, not, no, definitely not. All right, and it's very, the psychology I think is extremely profound. After he, he lays with her, it says in verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. Okay, how true is that? Okay, when it's lust, when it's really not true love, but it's lust, and uh, a man objectifies a woman like that and then uses her, he then despises her afterwards, even though he just got done telling her lovey, 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 BS. Okay, okay, because it's, it's really not love, all right? It's total objectification of a person. It's using them as a means 
to his own personal gratification. Uh, and of course, it can work both ways. You know, women with men as well. But unfortunately, sometimes it's more it's more the guy chasing after the woman. Yeah, Mark. Is this his sister? It's his half sister. Yeah. Blood sister. Yep, blood sister, but half sister though. So different different mother. Same father. Yeah, same father. So it's so it's David. Is got one son Amnon. He's got a daughter Tamar, but from two different wives. So, but he's got tons of wives, and that's the problem. You know, I was uh, I, I I listened recently an audio book to uh, this this one uh, Muslim woman, woman who grew up in um, Somalia, and um, her father had four wives, and so she tells a story of her growing up in all these different places and. Her father having these different so, so so at one point he was like out of the house for like eight years. They didn't even see him for eight years because he was out in another country with another one of his wives, and it was totally legit. Like they just people they live like that. But it shows you that absentee the absentee father is a real it's a real problem when you multiply the polygamy is is not uh, it's it's really contrary to the perfect fulfillment of the natural law. Polygamy is really not the way it was ever meant to be. It should be one man, one woman. Uh, for a number of reasons, and this is one of them, as you can see it, is that the, the father really needs to have more influence on the children than David has with his with his kids. Um, okay, so you have this this rape that takes place. He kicks her out. Now, so Tamar's brother is Absalom. How does Absalom feel about his half brother Amnon? Not good. Probably wants to kill him. Okay. He won't speak to him. He won't speak to him, neither good nor bad. All right. But she's 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 coming off even more pure than the virginal part because afterwards she didn't want to go. So it's almost like, well, okay, if we did this, then I'll be with you. Yeah. And he's like, no, get out. I know. And right. my point is that yeah. she's like, well, okay. I'm going to forgive the fact there was an attack and it's wrong, but okay. I know, right, right, right. So that's really pretty kind of, I don't want to use the word saintly, but. She, it's, it's pretty, a, you know what it is? It's honor. It's an honor, exactly, the word honor. It's an honor shame society. Here's another conversation I heard someone talk about. It's like, there's a difference between guilt innocent society and an honor shame society. You can see these ancient societies were honor shame societies. And Tamar was very. Uh, mindful of her honor and the honor of her household and her father's honor and her brother family's honor, so she was doing the honorable thing by by willing to be some with him. And now, you know, I don't know if that, I would still think that that's kind of incestuous, with a, even though it's not a full brother, it's a half brother. So I don't know the out, upsh- upshot of all that, but at least she was trying to make a make best out of a bad situation, you know. And so he, but he'll have nothing to do with her. Kicks her out. And then what happened, though, is now he has made her uneligible for marriage, essentially. And so now she's just lives in her fa- in her brother's house, like a widow. You know, real real nice guy, right? So so Absalom does not like Amnon, okay? And we'll see what happens. So then we won't read on, but I mean we won't read it. But in um, verses twenty three to twenty nine, Absalom murders Amnon, okay? And so basically what he says, he goes to King David and says, okay, you know what I want to do, Dad? How about you uh, get all my brothers, meaning like you know half-brothers as well as full brothers, tell us, get us all together, I, I want to throw a party for them all, huh? And so he, he throws them a party, and Amnon's there, and then Absalom tells his servants, okay, when you see 
Amnon drunk, you know, j- jump him and just kill him. And they do that. And all the rest of Absalom's brothers, they flee, they run. And there's this one rumor that gets to David that, that Absalom's killed all your sons. And David's like, ah! <laughs> oh my gosh! And then finally it comes out as, no, 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 just as Amnon was, was killed. And Absalom then flees. He, he, he basically puts himself in a self-exile. Okay, So he goes to another country and he finds shelter with a foreign king. And then little by little what happens is Joab who's maybe semi-sympathetic to Absalom, persuades King David to bring him back. And so now Absalom, after a few years, comes back, but the king won't allow him to see him face to face. And then two years goes by, and Absalom still has not been able to go into the king's presence, to his dad's presence, and, uh, and he knows that only Joab can really twist the king's arm to make that happen. And so he goes and he burns Joab's field down just to get his attention. So, so you see, Absalom's really. I mean, you know, say, on the one hand, you kind of see he's almost like he he seems like justified in killing Amnon. I mean, he's not ultimately; it was murder. Okay, and two wrongs don't make a right. But you kind of see how okay. I mean, he Amnon did something really, really bad to his sister, and so you see how how he would be angry enough to even kill him. Uh, so your sympathies are with Absalom a little bit, but you start to see little by little how much of a punk this guy is. All right, and uh, and then little by little your sympathies start to go away from Absalom. <laughs> Basically, it's just a very dysfunctional household, all you know, from beginning to end. And so Absalom goes and he burns Joab's field down. Joab's like, "What the heck are you doing?" <laughs> He's like, "I want you to go to my dad and get me back in his good favors." And so Joab pulls that off. And so David says, okay, let him come into my presence. And so then Joab goes and he, and he bows down to his dad and he's basically admitted into his, into his good side, into his favor again, even though he killed his brother, one of David's sons. Okay. So David is, David forgives him basically. Okay. Now, um, if we notice here in my little notes here, it says, the same passions that had mastered David, lust and murder, are scourges of his sin. Absalom imitated his father's treachery in dealing with Urias, and where his father had been guilty of homicide, he became guilty of fratricide. So, so David, okay, is there's lust involved in David's sin, and then murder. So, what happens? You got Tamar, who's I'm sorry, Amnon, who's full of lust, all right, and then goes and, and commits this rape, and then you've got murder of not just homicide but fratricide killing of his brother so you see these David commits these sins and what comes around goes around and these sins get come back to him okay but in some ways that goes back to the cross I mean it you're, you're yeah you're dealing with murder and and rape or adultery but in a sense you've got lust which is somebody wants something that you've got so the people wanted from Christ, from Jesus, they either wanted him to perform a miracle and prove who he is, or they wanted him to stop being, stop drawing so much attention to himself and drawing so much power to himself mm-hmm. from all the good he was doing. And at the same time, they want to kill him for that. So yeah. you've got your, you've got the jealousy and and the anger and all of that. It's a foreshadowing, isn't it? Well, I mean, a foreshadowing in the sense of. 
sin has certain certain there's patterns there's laws like basically you sin and this is what's going to happen so yeah you, there is a there is a there are laws and principles of virtue and vice that we can see all throughout the Bible so definitely but you, envy was the main thing that uh, that that got Jesus killed I think of though John the Baptist think of John the Baptist okay there's lust and murder involved there all right so uh, Herod uh, lusts after his brother's wife Herodias. And she's and she then cooperates with that, and she leaves her husband, her rightful husband, jumps on board with Herod, and John the Baptist tells it like it is and says it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. Can't do it. Sorry, buddy. And so Herodias hates John the Baptist's guts because he's telling the truth. <laughs> and so then he's arrested eventually. He's put in prison, and Herod. Uh, so Herod begins with lust and he ends with murder because. Eventually what happens is he makes that oath. So Herodias' daughter dances and entertains him on his birthday, his birthday party. He says, oh, you did such a beautiful dance. I'll give you up to uh, anything you ask for, up to half my kingdom. And so Herodias' daughter goes and says, okay, Ma, what should I ask for? And he says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so then Herod goes and he has John the Baptist murdered. So there's lust leading to murder. So... Okay, well, let's um, let's look at. I like uh, chapter fifteen, uh, verses one through six. Yeah. So now Absalom is back in the kingdom. So this is chapter fifteen, verses one through six. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses, and fifty men to run before him. What five five men wasn't enough? <laughs> right? And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gates. And when any man had a suit come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call him, call to him and say, From what city are you? When he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, Ah, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man deputed by the king to hear you. Absalom said, Moreover, Oh, that I were judge in the land... Then every man with a suit or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to do obeisance to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now this is pure demagoguery. (laughs) Okay, Absalom is just a total demagogue here. A demagogue is someone who plays on the people, acting like he's a, he's of the people. He's one of the people's people, you know. So, so here's Absalom. He's the son of the king. He's got fifty men running before him. The chariots. He's oh, look at me. Okay, and so he's Mister Important. But then when everybody comes to the gate, first of all, he 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 doesn't let them go to the to his dad because his dad is like the judge. So his dad will hear the cases and solve the disputes and you know get, bring these guys justice. But he doesn't let him do that. So he intercedes them and he says, Oh, the, the king hasn't deputed anybody to hear your case, but you know what? So tell me, so what's your problem, man? What's your problem, dude? Oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. She did that to you? Oh man, if I was judge, I would vindicate you like that. Oh, your cause is good. And so then the guy, so, so this is the BS he's telling them, right? And so when they come to him to like do obeisance, he says, he's like, oh no, 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 not for you, not for you. No, you're my, 
Facebook. Oh, come on. <laughs> you don't have to bow down to me. See, I'm a, I'm one. Of, I'm like folk like you. We're 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 in with each other. We're good. You know, it's like we're equals. It, it's total BS. It's demagoguery. You know, and I, unfortunately, I think today we really fall for demagoguery. So we don't like authority, and anybody who throws off any kind of trappings of authority and acts just like one of us, we fall all over him. But anyway, so that's, that's Absalom, who's a, who's a big demagogue. And uh, so he wins the hearts of the people of Israel. So what is he doing? What's he going to do? What do you think he's going to do? He's warming them up. <laughs> he's warming them up. He's going to get them all on his side, okay? So uh, let's go to verses 7 through 12. Who wants to read 7 through 12? Ida, you want to read 7 through 12? Conspiracy in Ephraim. After a period of four years, Ephraim said to the king, Allow me to go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. For while living in the Gersher, and Abram, your servant, made this vow. If the Lord ever brings me back to Jerusalem, I will worship him in Hebron. The king wished him a safe journey, and he went off to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout the tribes of Israel to say, When you hear the sound of the horn, declare Absalom king in Hebron. Two hundred men had accompanied Absalom from Jerusalem. They had been invited and went in good faith, knowing nothing of the plan. Absalom also sent to Ethripsil, <laughs> the Jillite knight, David's counselor, an invitation to come from his town, Gilaw, for the sacrifices he was about to offer. So the conspiracy gained strength and the people with Absalom increased in number. Okay, so there's conspiracy going on here. Absalom gets permission and his dad is not suspecting anything. His poor dad is just, he's not suspecting anything. And Absalom goes to Hebron. He has this big party, but what he's really doing is he's amassing people to get on his side. So eventually what happens is he, he there's an open rebellion and... Uh, David finally realizes, oh my gosh, there is a huge amount of people that are totally on Absalom's side and I'm done for. i got to get out of here. And so he goes. And um, he flees off into the wilderness with a few small people who were still his supporters because Absalom was that successful in getting everybody on his side through his demagoguery. And... Um, uh, Absalom comes into Jerusalem. He takes it over. He, he does the whole, that whole stunt with his wives. He sleeps with all of his father's wives. Okay. Um, then there's these battles that start breaking off. So there's these two uh, advisors. And one of the advisors is really actually in favor of David. And the other advisor is not in favor of David. These are advisors to Absalom. Okay, so there's some spies left. David's still got some spies. And uh, one of the advisors who's not in favor of David but in favor of Absalom gives Absalom better advice. Gives him good advice. Okay, this is how you need to deal with David. But then the guy that's in favor for, of David gives him, gives him bad advice. He says, okay, what you've got to do 
is you got to strike like lightning. Get all your men together. Go out there and fight. And like he knows that he knows that David's going to beat his butt because he's an experienced, seasoned warrior, and Absalom's a, a basically a pretty boy, and he's going to get he's going to get his lunch money taken. So uh, they they go out, and there's all this battle scenes that take place. And now Absalom. Now there's a period. There's a one passage where Absalom's got this big head of hair, right? Okay. So he's. Uh, I'm probably just jealous because I'm losing all my hair, right? <laughs> So, so Absalom, it says, it says at the end of the year he would cut his hair and his hair weighed like some huge amount of, you know, he's got this big, curly, beautiful hair, right? So Absalom's very vain and he likes this head of hair. Well, would you, once you have it, in the battle he's riding his horse and he gets caught in a tree and the limb branches and his horse goes out and he's hanging from the tree. And, and, and now, oh, the other thing is, is David says, David is very, very, he says, bring Absalom home to me alive. Don't kill him. Okay? Joab, people come to him, they say, you know, Absalom, we saw him hanging from a tree. And Joab goes, why didn't you kill him? He says, no, 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 we can't touch him. The David doesn't want him to kill him. Joab goes up and he kills him. Okay? And uh, so then Joab's dead. I'm sorry, uh, Absalom's dead. So you got Amnon dead, you got Absalom dead. So all that prophecy of the sword not leaving David's house is being fulfilled before our eyes, okay? And uh, they, they even take Absalom's body, they throw it in a pit, and they cover it with stones. <coughs> and all the people come back to Jerusalem, and the, the rebellion is completely reversed. David's totally back in power. And now Joab would expect, and all the people that risked their lives to fight for David and everything else, they want to party. But David is is heartbroken because he loves Absalom. He loves Absalom, and there's a real. It's really a kind of a touching scene if we go to it. Um, uh, it's in chapter eighteen. Uh, verse thirty-one. So this is Absalom's already been killed. So verse 31, Behold, the, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good tidings, my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the power of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? So the, guy, the messenger just got done telling him, We won! And David only cares about, Is Absalom alive? Okay, and the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Meaning... He's dead. And the king was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom! Oh, Absalom! My son! My son! Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. 
For today I perceive that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. And the king arose and took his seat in the gates. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gates. And all the people came before the king. So, I mean, right? David, are you happy that you slept with Bathsheba? Are you happy now that you killed Uriah? (laughs) I mean, he's really paying for it. Okay, his heart is being torn apart. He loves his kids. They're all getting killed. And yet now he's, he's torn because he really should be thankful to his people who risked their lives for him. And so he's got to go out and thank them when he's not really feeling too happy about all of this. All right? So unfortunately, all of this kind of negativity continues on. And um, eventually what happens is <coughs> Solomon grows up and he becomes the next king. And um, uh, Solomon really unifies the kingdom like nobody has before. He builds the temple of God. This glorious ceremony takes place and the glory of God comes into the temple. Afterwards, God comes to Solomon in a dream and says, Ask me uh, ask me for one of three things, either victory over your enemies, a lot of money, or wisdom. What do you want? And Solomon is, is, does the smart thing and he's only a teenager at this point. He says, I ask for wisdom because I've got a huge responsibility to lead all these people and I can't do it without prudence and wisdom, so give me wisdom. God says you've, you've asked, I mean, this is a good request that you've made, so I'll give you that and I'll give you your enemies and I'll give you wealth. And so then Solomon becomes so wise, he knows all of these proverbs, he's like, he knows scientific knowledge, you know the scientific knowledge of the day, um, he knows medicine, all of this kind of stuff, and uh, he knows how to, he's, he's like an economic whiz, so he amasses huge amounts of money. He knows how to govern the, the country really, really well. And he's on top of top of everything. And then he starts to love all of these women. And he, little by little, he starts marrying all of these women. And he has 700 wives, 300 <laughs> concubines. And they turn his heart away from the lords. And he starts to worship other gods. And then a prophet is sent to Solomon and says, because you're doing this, God is going to tear the kingdom away from you, and um, and but I'm uh, but for the sake of David, because of my promise to David, I'm going to allow your. I won't do it in your day. It'll happen after you're dead. Number one and number two, I'll still leave one tribe, Judah and Jerusalem, to David and his aunts and his uh, descendants and his. So, but all the rest of Israel is going to break apart. So, what happens is uh, Solomon does this bad thing when he dies, and his, his son Rehoboam takes over. Rehoboam has got two parties who are giving him advice. He's got a group of guys who are older and who were around when Solomon was around, and they knew how Solomon was pretty tough on people. And so they're like, "Okay, Rehoboam, this is what you got to do. If you want everybody to continue to be with you, tell them, you know, promise them." You know, good things. Be a little bit easy with them. You know, go light with them. Okay, and and you'll win their hearts, and they'll be loyal to you. And then what? And then there's these guys that grew up with Rehoboam, these young punks, know-it-alls, and they say and they don't know what they're talking about. So he goes to counsel with them, and he said, and they say, "Oh no, you got to show yourself tough. You gotta, you know, you gotta say, look, my little finger is thicker than my dad's loins. Okay, 
And uh, you know, my dad, my dad uh, chastised you with whips. I'm going to chastise you with scorpions. Okay, so like trash talk the people. And so Rehoboam does that, and then all and all of the tribes are like, forget it. We don't need this guy. We're going. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we don't. And then they try to do some kind of battle, and it's unsuccessful. And so the the nation of Israel split right in half. And you have from then on Judah and Jerusalem that are isolated, and it's called referred to as the Southern Kingdom. Then you have Israel, which is the Northern Kingdom. And the first king of the Northern Kingdom is this guy Jeroboam. And uh, the prophet who is sent to Jeroboam, a prophet sent to Jeroboam, and says, Jeroboam, God's going to give you this kingdom. Now, if you do what's right. You'll be able to maintain it. Everything's going to be okay. If you don't, it's going to be trouble for you too. So what does Jeroboam do? Well, he sits up. He sets up two idols. He sets up a golden calf, basically, in two different sanctuaries in Bethel and up northern and uh, up in the tribe of Dan. And so he leads all of Israel astray into idolatry. And then, I, and then Israel eventually God punishes them by sending the Assyrians into them and he wipes them out in 724. So they exist for about 200 more years and then they're wiped out. And then the northern kingdom, sorry, uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, continues going on, but they, they get wiped out by 586 B.C. as well by the Babylonians. Okay, And so the, the one thing that's left to David is his descendants are still there and after they come back from the exile, they're there as governors, but they're not... They don't have a like a sovereign state, nation state. They're still they're under the rule of the Persians, and then the different nations that that go on, and so they they exist that way. And then you got the Maccabean period, and then eventually Christ is born. And he's born of Joseph, who's a poor carpenter. But I mean, if you think about it, Joseph was the heir to the Davidic throne, but he's a poor man. So the state of David's lineage is reduced to, you know, there's no room in the inn. You know, Joseph yeah. and, and Mary, there's no room in the end. So, but it's in that poverty and in that apparent failure mm-hmm. that salvation comes to us. Wow. And so the lesson for all of us is that we have to stay in Christ. It's, we can only be obedient to God in Christ. We can only see God's promises and His prophecies and His fulfilled in Christ. And um, so that's the, that's the moral of the story, folks. Again and again and again. Again and again and again. If you don't get that picture, you know, so if you read the whole Bible, it really comes clear, you know, it's hammered home to us. Great. So with the last five minutes or so, do we have any final comments or thoughts or questions or it's not so Sue, is it literal in the old testament these guys really had seven hundred words? Yes, that this human deposit. It's a figure of speech, is it? I think it's true actually. What it, what it was is they had a they have um, they all had their own houses and they just lived their own lives and Solomon maybe he saw them once or twice or something and that was it really that's that's that was the extent of it and then the concubines were kept in the harem and they all lived in one so the the concubines who had less rights than a full wife they would all be just together in the harem and they would hardly ever see Did the women have lots of husbands they went the other way the no. No. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. It was that, not that way. Uh, so there's polygamy, that means multiple wives, and then the other one is polygyny, I think it's called. Uh, polyandry, I'm sorry. Polyandry is the one where the wife has multiple husbands. That's a very rare, extremely rare occurrence in human society. Um, because, well, because of the, the, the children, the main thing with polygamy is you can have a lot of kids. 
But if it's a polyandry, there's no increase in number of children. In fact, it's, ba- it's not good. It's actually not good for the health of the, of the woman or for the children, actually. I think so. <laughs> um, but like with Muslims, I'm thinking like uh, Muslims, you know, they have multiple wives. Some of them, right? Yeah, not all of them. I remember speaking to a Muslim man from Somalia. Well, this is about 12, 13, 14 years ago. And I said, uh, he goes, yeah, so he's talked about his... His half brothers and stuff, and so I was like, okay, so you had, so tell me how this works, you know. So he he grew up, he had his his father had two wives, okay, and then I said, would you want to ever take a second wife? Here he is living in America, and he says, you got to be kidding me, you got to make a lot of money. You got, he says, it's not, it's, he says it's almost impossible to do that. You got to have a lot of money, um, so and time and everything else. Uh, but like someone like Osama bin Laden, someone had said to me, you know, Osama bin Laden, the famous terrorist here, he has 52 or 54 sons. Okay, so so that's what polygamy polygamy can lead. But did, how many of his sons really know knew him? And I mean, that's the reality. You know. Yeah. <coughs> And tell me if it's in there because I thought I'd write it. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with this. 